you know, it's really going to be falling to the states to take action, states and localities. And so it used to be the case that groups like, you know, NextGen, which is, you know, Tom Steyer founded, were really leading on a ballot approach to climate. And I just don't see as much energy there anymore. And I think it's a huge missed opportunity. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is another political entrepreneur. His name is Jay Costa, and he is co-founder and CEO at Equal. Equal works to advance the qualification of citizen-initiated ballot measures that propose policies in the interest of everyday people. They've built technology and expertise around the signature gathering process. Before starting Equal, Jay worked towards more transparency in political campaign finance at a variety of organizations. He's found a really interesting niche with a problem to solve. You should listen. So after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Jay Costa at Equal. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Time Plots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Time Plot's library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Jay, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. Hi, my name is Jay Costa. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Equal, which is a company that builds technology to help grassroots organizations gather signatures to qualify for the ballot. Tell me a little bit about where you grew up, your education, your first few jobs, that sort of stuff. Sure. So born and raised in outside of Boston, Massachusetts. Went to school there, stayed around there for college. I went to Harvard and I studied biological anthropology as an undergrad, which to just kind of preempt the question of what that means uh, is basically the study of human evolution and human origins. Questions like as a species, who are we? How did we get to be here? And you know, what is our nature? So I came into college with a, a deep intellectual interest in this and was really deeply involved in research and the academic pursuit of it as an undergrad and really thought I'd continue to pursue it academically for a while. But as I neared the end of my time in college, I realized that I really didn't want to reside in the ivory tower for my whole life. And so while the questions in this field of study were fascinating to me and still are, I, I realized I was much more energized by the idea of spending my time day to day working on problems and kind of the more lived reality of Main Street. So, of course, you know, this queued up the age-old questions that many 21-year-olds face of what it is that I actually wanted to do with my life. I knew I wasn't satisfied with the idea of going off to somewhere like Wall Street to spend my days just trying to make a lot of money. That was especially true at the time, given that I was graduating into the aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis, uh, in which Wall Street seemed largely to be a responsible actor for the worse. One of the central conclusions of my academic studies is that humans as a species have this just incredible opportunity to build social structures through cooperation that allow everyone to flourish and also to be planetary citizens who cultivate an ecology that likewise flourishes and supports us in the long term. Of course, while we've accomplished so much and so many incredible things as humans. It felt to me, and, and quite honestly, it still feels to me like we're falling short of our promise in a lot of ways, things like rampant inequality and environmental destruction, to name just a couple. 
So I, I went off in search of where I could contribute my efforts that felt like it had the potential to be a real lever of, of change. And as I got into the issues, financial regulation was quite top of mind, as were things like climate change and healthcare. It really struck me that the problem wasn't that we didn't have good solutions you know, for all of these things and, and many other things, is that the mechanisms that were supposed to be putting these solutions into place, namely legislatures and Congress in particular, were really kind of broken. Before I could even really get very deep into the quest to figure out why that might be, I was sort of hit over the head with it, with the Supreme Court's decision on Citizens United. The fact that corporate and wealthy interests are able to exert such a huge amount of influence on our electoral process seemed like an entirely obvious reason for why government isn't as responsive as it should be to the interests of everyday people. And so I really became pretty obsessed with campaign finance reform. And I learned a lot about it, the many different facets of it. And I decided that I really wanted to get involved in trying to do something to affect change on that front, because I saw it as a really foundational issue. And so luckily, quite early in my search for where to do that, an organization called MapLight, which is based in Berkeley, California, was hiring. And MapLight is a nonprofit organization that really takes a data-driven approach to raising awareness about money and politics and kind of connecting the dots between the contributions that are coming in and legislative outcomes, different political outcomes. And so I came in on the ground floor there. And a lot of what MapLight is doing is ingesting public records, cleaning them, analyzing them, working with journalists to get information about campaign finance into news stories and building web applications on top of all of that data to help make it more accessible to citizens and journalists. In the course of my time there, kind of self-taught, on a lot of data and web app kind of skills, SQL, HTML, JavaScript, uh, PHP, and grew into a role where I was managing the web and data projects for the organization. And so helped to build and launch a couple key ones. One is a search application for campaign finance data records that was adopted by the California Secretary of State. And another is a comprehensive sort of voter information guide that we launched in partnership with the League of Women Voters of California that has a lot of information on, you know, who's on the ballot, what's on the ballot, who's behind it in terms of campaign finance and endorsements, substantive information about the people and the issues. And that's been used by millions of Californians, you know, since it launched. So from there, I still kind of had a hunger for being more involved in not just making the issue more visible to the public, but also really trying to do something to change it in terms of changing the law. And so I, I got involved in a number of other projects after MapLight, doing some local organizing with a group called Root Strikers that Larry Lessig started, running a, a group called Counterpack that was doing accountability on candidates and legislators to try to get them to do the right thing on the issue. I was involved in passing a public financing system in the city of Berkeley. And then most recently, I have led a project called Voters' Right to Know, which is a, a nonprofit that basically uses the ballot to try to change the rules around campaign finance and, and democracy issues kind of more generally at the state level. And we have done work with that project in a number of states, North Dakota, Alaska, Oregon, Arizona, California, and, and really become, you know, quite familiar with the ballot initiative process. Huge believers in the potential of the ballot as a mechanism to get things done, especially when they're popular and they're things that legislatures can't seem to get done, uh, but also intimately familiar with the challenges of getting things on the ballot. And so that is really, you know, <laughs> the very long-winded windup for how I came to work on Equal, the whole goal of which is to make it easier to get things on the ballot for people-centered organizations. When I was looking at Equal, is it Equal or Equal? Equal. Equal. As in qualification. 
but but the the double entendre is not uh not unintended the mission on your one page website as people you know open to people with values and it didn't say progressive values and it didn't say your values it just said values and that kind of struck me as a little unclear or ambiguous what do you mean when you are deciding who you will work with when you talk about values yep it's a great question so we formed equal after some very careful deliberation as a public benefit corporation. Uh, and the reason we made that decision is because we wanted to have a mission baked into our corporate charter and really to have that be part of the, the DNA of the company. And, you know, in that mission, in that sort of charter based mission, we describe our priorities as being protecting and promoting the institutions of democracy and furthering a just and equal economy and environment. I realize that, that that is still at a level of vagueness, but in the ballot space, it's interesting because ballot measures are sort of by definition nonpartisan, but we really like to describe the work that we do as being people-centered. So in a lot of cases that does end up looking progressive, like some of our customers, this cycle that we've worked with are active on issues like reproductive rights and gun safety and voting rights, though I always kind of have to roll my eyes a little bit at the idea that voting rights should be a partisan issue. Medical debt, putting caps on in-state tuition for public universities. So, you know, those might be described as more progressive, but we also are highly interested in process reforms on democracy, things like campaign finance reform, which might be described as being more liberal, but actually are not always supported broadly by more liberal interests. I think there is a kind of a joy in running an enterprise where you get to make decisions about who to work with and rather than maybe having that decision in the hands of somebody else or taking all comers. It's a powerful decision. It is. I totally agree. And as I think the the name of your podcast really hints at, there is a real you know, battle going on in our country for the types of issues that, you know, are matter to everyday people and are good for everyday people in our country, as opposed to the things that matter to a powerful and wealthy elite. Being able to proudly serve folks who are fighting for the former is exactly what we want to be doing. I've talked to activists in a number of states or people who deal with ballot initiatives strategically nationally who really like the angle that ballot initiatives give you, particularly like in a state with a Republican legislature where you want to pass something like a rise in the minimum wage or something that is kind of broadly supported for partisan reasons, can't get through the legislature, but has a decent chance of passing as an up or down vote by the electorate directly. Um, what what do you see happening currently in you know th through your work and beyond in the world of ballot initiatives? Yeah, I think that you identify something very real. Ballot initiatives have their sort of origin story in the progressive era of the late 19th century, early 20th century, and were used uh, really to give people a voice over uh, legislatures that had been captured by things like railroad interests, but also were used to advance things like women's suffrage, popular election of senators, et cetera. And more recently, you know, in the 21st century, they've been used to great effect on some of the issues that you have mentioned. Things like minimum wage, things like Medicaid expansion, paid family leave, paid sick leave, marijuana legalization. As you say, like in many instances, these things are passing in red states, Arkansas, Idaho, Missouri. I think what it gets at is a reality that actually when it comes to issues, there's a lot of agreement 
among voters on some of these issues that are sort of everyday, you know, issues that matter to everyday people. And so, yeah, there's a huge opportunity to get things done that otherwise couldn't be done in red states, but frankly, also in blue states. You know, there's there's just a lot of entrenched interests that coalesce around the legislative process. I mean, certainly at the federal level at this point, but even in blue state legislatures that really make it hard to get meaningful reforms passed. The right wing uses the ballot process also. They pass tax limitation measures and for years they tried to use anti-gay marriage as a wedge issue. And there's a lot of things like that. Uh, It's certainly not a playground for only one side. It's a battlefield. That's exactly right. And and honestly, um, you know, sometimes when I have conversations with folks about the work that I'm doing, they point to those examples as, you know, reasons to be actually a little fearful of the ballot. But my retort to them always, uh, and I'll stand by it, is it's a reason to engage, you know, the fact that the other side can use this mechanism and has at times used this mechanism to advance bad things is a reason to double down on engagement. Look at what just happened in the Supreme Court and what is probably going to continue happening in the Supreme Court for a while. We don't like those outcomes either. Is it a reason to stop caring about getting good justices appointed to the Supreme Court? No, it's a reason to care even more. When you were working with Voters' Right to Know, which is like almost four and a half, five years of your life, tell me a little bit about the learning that you received there that was relevant to starting up equal. Sure. One is when you have a popular issue, the ballot is a huge opportunity to get something done on it. If you can get it on the ballot, you know, things that are polling routinely in high 60s, 70s, sometimes even 80s, which is what we see on the issues we work on in voters' rights to know, it's it's a really hard campaign for the other side to win at the ballot. So the big obstacle is getting on. Part two of that learning is getting on is really hard. What has really brought us to work on equal is a view of the process of signature gathering that that really kind of sees it as a broken market. These campaigns to gather signatures for the ballot, on average, you know, across all of the ballot initiative states, of which there are 24, counting for about half of the United States population. On average, you have to probably gather about 250,000 signatures. In some small states, like uh, North Dakota, for example, that might be 30,000. In really big states like California, it's closer to a million. But these are wet signatures that you have to get on physical pieces of paper as mandated by law. And it's oftentimes that is in a time-bound sort of way, like you'll have six months or something from the time you file a measure to when you have to turn your signatures in. And so it is a really, really cumbersome type of campaign to run. You're talking about tens of thousands of pieces of paper. You have to have thousands of volunteers in the field carrying those pieces of paper. The paper costs money to print. Each one of those signatures basically has a a dollar value on it due to the market that I'll talk about in a minute. And so the cumbersome nature of it, I think, has really made it such that a lot of organizations really don't attempt to stand up a very big grassroots volunteer program. They instead turn to paid canvassing firms. In that realm, you know, there's a relative handful of paid canvassing firms who essentially will fly, you know, their people into a state once they get contracted, put them on the ground, manage their work, and deliver signatures to the campaign. And they do that for quite exorbitant prices. So in 2020, on average, it cost $8 per signature to work with these firms, $2 million on average to qualify an initiative. That's a big amount of money. And it's basically prohibitive for a lot of the groups that should be leading this work. Ourselves being a group that is trying to get things done on the ballot, we saw this as a problem and kind of had the insight that it's a problem for on issues beyond ours. And so 
Equal is a platform that's designed to put tools in the hands of grassroots organizations to help them do more of their own signature gathering work, thereby making qualification attainable where it otherwise might not have been, making it cheaper. And you know, as a critical final point here, building their own capacity to do this work perennially. The model of paying millions of dollars to fly people in to do a handful of months of work and then take off is not a good long-term power building model. And so we really want to shift things so that more investment is happening in in in-state, in-organization grassroots capacity. That makes a lot of sense. If what you need to do is collect what you called wet signatures and you're a technology platform, what's the connection? How do you operationalize? How do you rationalize that process using tech? Yep. So I'll I'll kind of walk you through an end-to-end headline on a number of features. The first thing that the platform does is really tries to optimize the field management component of this petitioning work. And so the way we do that is by unique tracking of the petitions that go out into the field. So we literally have a system that builds unique tracking codes for every petition that gets printed. We work with the campaign up front to get these codes on the pieces of paper. We also have a system that's built for distributed printing if and when campaigns want to use that. And once we have those trackable petitions, you then onboard your signature gathering teams. So we have a system of invitations that can be used you know, with email addresses or with links to basically get your people onto the platform into a collaborative workspace. As petitions head out into the field, you keep track of exactly who is carrying them. And you keep track of any time they change hands. And this can be done really seamlessly using the QR codes that we print on the petitions to basically manage the data records behind them. And then as they get signatures, uh, there's a system for distributed reporting of, you know, how many signatures a given petition has, who got them, and the ability to take an image of it using a phone to basically save all of that as part of the record for that petition. And all of that foots to having a really accurate, real-time view of what's going on in the campaign. You know, is it time to print more petitions? Who has petitions, but they don't have signatures on them yet? What is our total signature count? And we can see all that not only at the level of the campaign, but at the level of individual organizers in the campaign. And so we can know who's performing really well, who do we want to, you know, promote to be a team leader and train other people because they're having great success, who needs more training, et cetera. So that is kind of the field management component. There's also a component related to a very unique sort of ballot initiative signature gathering problem, which is that of validation. So in order for a signature to count, it needs to belong to a registered voter and also needs to conform to a number of other sort of compliance level rules that are set at the jurisdiction level. So if it's a statewide measure, it's a state level. If it's a local measure, it's at the level of municipality. But, you know, common among all these is the fact that it has to belong to a registered voter. And so you can imagine there's a lot of headache in trying to, you know, check signatures that have been written on a piece of paper against voter records. And so we've built uh, a process for taking, you know, using the image that's taken of a petition, both through, you know, human workflows as, as well as automated processes to digitize and structure the signer data from these petitions a, to you know, use it where it's legal to do that for other aspects of the campaign. B, to run automated voter registration checks of this data. So we have integrations built with VAN, some other voter file services to support that. And you know, in the instance of VAN, our clients can write activist codes back to their VAN files based on their petition signers, basically to try to close the black hole that previously existed in hundreds of thousands of names living on these pieces of paper. And I'll say one final thing on validation, the industry standard right now when working with canvassing firms is to essentially assume that you're going to have to collect at least 30% more signatures than 
are actually required to get on the ballot. And that's just wildly inefficient. And oftentimes when you're trying to run a grassroots program, you just don't even have the capacity off the shelf to try to do this validation work. And so that is really a key innovation that Equal is providing. It's, it's not only allowing organizations to do more of their own signature gathering, it's also making the signature gathering they're doing more reliable and more accurate. When you earlier referenced a number of like $8 per signature, what is your experience now with your clients in what it costs, counting the software rental, I assume that they have to do from you? Sounds like using volunteer work rather than paid workers. What is it averaging out to now, or do you have that number? In terms of cost per signature using your system? Yeah, it's a great question. So we, uh, our model is to, yes, we charge a, a, a software subscription fee um, and included in that fee is, you know, is a bundle of services that includes some, you know, a certain number of signatures validated, you know, for the campaign. We also offer a, a DIY model where they can do their own work on that. But it's hard to say as an exact science, you know, how many signatures the campaign is getting that they, you know, couldn't possibly have gotten without using our software. But we've heard from our first customers that this platform has been really critical to their success. So in just one sort of case study example, we worked with a Michigan reproductive rights campaign this cycle, which appears headed to the ballot. If it's not, something very crazy will have happened because they actually turned in more signatures than have ever been turned in in the state's history. Even if you assume a, a relatively modest efficiency gain from the equal platform in terms of collecting more signatures than you otherwise could have, you're seeing you know a 10x return on investment in terms of the price that you're paying for equal services versus the price you'd be paying you know to get those signatures from a paid service. I suppose that there's a important use of the signature gathering process to make sure that things don't make it to the ballot that don't have a certain amount of support. I guess that's like the basis for gathering signatures in the first place is you don't want too many things on the ballot or you don't want things that don't have broad enough support that a lot of people would sign on to it. Do you think that this runs the risk of eroding that sort of gatekeeping that's done by the signature process in the first place? I don't. I really don't. I think you're right that signature gathering is a is is designed to be a you know a threat. It's a threshold question on you know is this an issue that actually has a certain amount of public support? And you know no matter how slick of a platform we could possibly build, nothing is ever going to replace the need for real people doing real work because it it's a process that requires again like having a face-to-face -face interaction with hundreds of thousands of registered voters and getting them to take 10 minutes of their day, understand what they're signing, sign, give out their name and address. And, you know, you'll just never get to the point of qualification through a grassroots-driven campaign without having a real issue that really resonates with a broad number of voters. Now, the corollary to that is that if you are a moneyed interest, you can absolutely pay a canvassing firm to go out and get these signatures for you. This is trying to make it so that people-powered campaigns can better compete with the fact that ballot initiatives can be used in a pay-to-play way. Speaking of, of sort of moneyed interests and maybe the other side politically speaking, is there a analogous platform used by conservative interests? I am not aware of any analogous platform. It also strikes me that it's not just ballot initiatives that need signatures to qualify. Candidacies, there are other places in politics, and I suspect beyond where this kind of technology could be helpful. Do you allow the use elsewhere and what have you seen or what else is an opportunity for your enterprise? 
we absolutely allow the use elsewhere. You know, what brought us to this work was ballot measures, citizen initiated ballot measures. But you're absolutely right that in most states, there's a, a process for, you know, qualifying candidates for the ballot via signatures. There's also, you know, some places where there's paper process voter registration. Really, the the equal platform and the tools we've built are applicable to any situation in which you need to go actually get wet signatures. You're sending pieces of paper out into the field, you know, individual units of pieces of paper, and each of those things needs to contain a certain number of signatures. And you have a vested interest in knowing about what's going on with that and making sure that the signatures are going to count. That's a big area of growth that we see for ourselves and, you know, part of the market opportunity. Did you notice that a bunch of Republican statewide candidates were recently disqualified, I guess, because they used a corrupt firm that had a whole lot of forged signatures? What was your observation around that? Yeah, I did follow that. And actually, you know, someone I was talking to more in the progressive sphere describing equal again, mostly from an initiative centric, uh, in an initiative centric way, you know, said that's all well and good, but actually the thing I'm really interested in is talking to you about how we can use this for candidates, because I don't ever want to be in the position of that happening. There's a huge amount of risk when you're spending a lot of money to go through these processes. You have to really trust the people that are doing the work for you. And so I think having tools that allow you to essentially audit whatever's going on in the field is a critical need. There are very hyper-local offices that require 25 signatures. There are clearly statewide California ones that require millions. What is the smallest entity, would you say, that it makes sense to use what you offer? There is a certain amount of implementation that we will do for our customers You know, to make sure that the petitions are formatted exactly as they want them to be to you know do training initial trainings on the platform and so for a one off campaign that needs to collect 25 signatures it's probably not worth it a because 25 signatures are just not really that hard to track b because of you know the amount of the amount of time it would take for us to even kind of get going on that not to say it's a lot but just you know for that low number of signatures probably not worth it but we do think there's still an opportunity, and if anybody out there uh, that is part of a state or local party is listening, you know, to actually work with, you know, kind of more party level or interest group level interests that could make this tool then available to the candidates that they support. That makes sense. When you were talking about the validation of a registered voter and matching, I wasn't clear about exactly when that happened. Like it strikes me that the best point to do that is when you are facing the voter themselves, where you could have the app on the phone and try to look them up there and, you know, have no question that, you know, sort of next to their wet signature, it's their voter ID number or whatever. Are you talking about matching them at that point, or are you talking about later on, or how does that work? You're totally right. It would be ideal to catch unregistered voters at that stage. Or just make sure you're getting the match right. Yes. So we do have the ability to look up voter records through the platform. But the the tricky thing, and I've seen other groups do this, you know, in, in various ways of trying to like get a voter, voter registration match at the time of signing in the field. The reason I've seen that have trouble is just because it's already a pretty big ask to get somebody to stop and sign something. And the more you load onto that interaction, the more inefficient and kind of prone to breakage it becomes. So for signatures gathered out in the field, the standard, and this is really the industry standard has been to check signatures after the fact. And in most places, it is permissible if you discover that a signature is not expected to be valid for a certain reason, you can strike it through and it won't be counted against you. So that is how things generally work in a you know hand-to-hand field sort of way. I will say there's a, a final component of the equal platform that is 
more geared toward what you're talking about. And it was really kind of driven by an experience that my co-founder and I had with some of the democracy work that we were doing in 2020. Uh, We were part of a campaign in Arizona to try to get something on the ballot. And, you know, as we all know, all too well, in spring of 2020, the world shut down. And so we had 300,000 signatures in the bank and basically had to wrap up the operation because it wasn't possible to go talk to people. And so, you know, this really kind of bore out the insight that there's, you know, there's got to be a better way to actually go about getting these signatures. We have all of these great tools for online activism, uh, you know, getting volunteers to connect with, you know, opportunities, you know, why, like, why are we just kind of continuing to only send people out into the field, brute force to like, occupy grocery store parking lot or a park or a line at a baseball game or a concert? It's like, why don't we do more targeted recruitment of signers and volunteers. And so we we also have a system of of landing pages built in that essentially allow organizations to target their digital constituents and push them in that direction and connect them with opportunities that they make available to sign. So in some places it's totally permissible for folks to download, print and mail back a petition themselves so they could do that. Other places that's not permissible, so you really still have to do something in person. But so we have a system of event management. You can say, you know, we're going to be at this location from these times. Please register. And the key here, this is kind of getting back to your point about registration. We, If we're gathering data from prospective signers at that juncture, we can perform a voter reg check up front. And we can use that to know who it's worth pursuing. If they're not a registered voter, it's a great opportunity to send them out to get registered, you know, send them out to a voter registration website. We do have tools that try to sort of triage that voter registration problem at the front end. Should the signature process from the governmental end be changed? Should they be allowing electronic signatures? It seems like a pretty antique rule that you have to have pen on paper. Oh. It's absolutely insane. (laughs) Yeah. There's no question in my mind that legislatures should be allowing for electronic signatures on ballot initiative petitions. I don't foresee them doing that at any point soon because they largely don't like the fact that voters can, you know, get around their process and make things happen directly. I... 100% believe that electronic signatures should be allowed. I mean, in an age when you can do things like, you know, apply for a mortgage or open a bank account online, it's like we can't build a secure system for adding your name to a petition. That's crazy. Yeah. I mean, I'm signing things all the time through DocuSign or whatever. Exactly. Do you think there's any prospect of that? Have you seen any movement to change things? I don't think there's any prospect for that, realistically. I wish there were. The most interesting opportunity came actually during COVID. There there were a number of campaigns that were in the same position as the one that I described that we were involved with that, you know, petitioned actually to have an exception made where electronic signatures would be allowed. And basically across the board, they weren't there was possibly one or two instances where it was considered courts ended up intervening, but we've kind of gotten back to a place where universally it is not allowed. And I think the legislatures have a vested interest in kind of blocking that from happening. In fact, in a lot of places you see legislatures trying to even further handicap this mechanism of change making by writing really strict rules about what counts as a valid signature by increasing the number of votes you need to pass an initiative because they don't like not having ultimate power over what happens legislatively. Can you tell me a little bit about what it's taken to get this enterprise off the ground? I mean, you mentioned you have a co-founder. Can you tell me about that person? What has it taken to raise money, to hire? Where are you in terms of the story of the business. Yeah, absolutely. 
So uh, we formed Equal again as a public benefit corporation in late 2020. It was the product of COVID locked at home uh, sort of ideation. And uh, we raised an initial investment round to support building the platform, getting it to a level of production readiness. My co-founder is named Jim Herowagen. He has a deep background in enterprise software, working for starting, building, investing in enterprise software companies. Long career in that. Uh, around 2015, he kind of shifted out of that and commenced on a journey similar to mine around democracy reform. And we kind of coalesced together to work on some of that together. That's how we've kind of jointly learned about the problem and, and faced the problem we're trying to solve ourselves. And so kind of telling this story out of sequence, but once we built the platform and got it to a level of production readiness, we started you know, taking it out to prospective customers. And so it's really over the last year that we have been in the field and we've been in the field in five states on statewide campaigns. These are some of the most active states in terms of market spending on uh, signature gathering count for more of half of, of the market. So we're really happy about this traction and we've worked on issues such as reproductive rights, gun safety, voting rights, democracy reform, campaign finance reform, medical debt. We expect that five of the campaigns that we've worked on will be headed to the ballot in 2022. So we're really thinking about how to grow and scale heading into next cycle. We've been part of the Higher Ground Labs Accelerator class this year, which has been a fantastic experience and has really kind of helped us just think about our plans for the future. And so we're really excited. We think that we can expand who we're serving and our the services we're offering pretty dramatically over the next couple of years. You mentioned the incumbent firms that are signature gathering entities that are already, you know, well wired into the process. And I assume uh, you know, some of them are pretty good at what they do or they wouldn't continue to exist in a somewhat competitive market. One, how do you think they view you if they're aware of you at this point? And two, have any of them brought you in as a tool to do what they do better? I can't speak of, of whether, you know, their level of awareness of what we're doing for the most part, but I think that they would, you know, see it as a good thing. Ultimately, they want the measures they work on to be successful. You know, part of the value that we provide by making these efforts more grassroots driven is we also make them more likely to win. When you get buy-in from real people on the ground who want to help make something happen, those people aren't just going to blow away at the end of, you know, when you turn in your signatures, they're going to stick around and, you know, help with voter contacts. So are you then additive? Like they're, uh, people trying to qualify things on the ballot are both using paid firms and you, or is it one or the other, or how does that sort out? Yeah. In most cases we sit alongside a paid operation. Um, you know, in, again, you know, in most States you're having to gather hundreds of thousands of signatures and quite frankly, where the vast majority of, of groups are, at this moment in time is they just don't have the capacity to do that on their own, even if in a really well-organized campaign. Would it make sense to also manage paid gathering alongside? It seems like an extremely similar problem. And then you could be the, the, almost the, the sole platform for both the firms that do it in a paid way, as well as, you know, the additive part of doing it in a more grassroots way. And then you would have that data all together in one place and it seems like a, a win-win. It's almost like I planted that question. <laughs> which you did not. <laughs> yeah, which, <laughs> which I did not. You're absolutely right. And that is you know, one of our future directions. We have already piloted some of that management of paid capacity to augment a uh, grassroots service. And, you know, we believe we can do it really well in large part because it's managed on top of this platform that is, you know, really robust and has sort of an opinion, opinionated approach to the process that adds efficiencies. Yeah, that is something that going forward, we are offering to our customers 
we still continue to hope and hold as a central goal that they will do as much of their own signature gathering as they can, because it's better for everyone. But we're prepared to augment that as needed. I mean, do the existing players have their own internal systems that they've built or hired that they could repurpose out to compete with you? Some of them do have technology that they use internally. They don't make it available. So far. So far. I think one of the things that will make it hard for them to compete with us is that we have worked very closely with our early customers to who are persistent actors in the space to really define the way that they work and the way that they want to organize. This is really first and foremost designed to be an application that works for grassroots organizations as opposed to, you know, a firm. Why only five states so far? Is that kind of because the software is in beta and you need to manage how many people are using it to kind of clean it up? Is it because that's as many as you could find as customers? What pace are you trying to get to in terms of having this stuff used widely? It's certainly nothing to do with the software. We took a healthy amount of time building, you know, V1 to a place where I would definitely not call it in beta or even an MVP. You know, it's really uh, built to support scale and extensibility. There are really no limitations on our ability to serve, you know, a number of states or number of campaigns. It's much more just that our approach to, you know, getting in front of customers has involved a lot of shoe leather. This is a totally new uh, type of tool. And, you know, just identifying who's out there working on initiatives at any given time is research intensive. And to convince them that this is something that is, you know, worth their while to try is also time intensive. There's a lot of knowledge in the space at the Ballot Initiative Strategy Center, a variety of other people who who work politically to qualify ballots in particular areas or more broadly. Are you like working through organizations like that or have you had success with sort of aggregators of ballot knowledge? We're huge fans of BISC. I've attended their conference many times, have missed it over the last couple of, while we have been in COVID times. I miss being there in person, I should say. They've done online programming. But um, yes, benefit greatly from you know the work they do to sort of assemble research on process in various states and jurisdictions, as well as their convening of, you know, actors in the space. I'll say on the um on the question of, you know, who else we're working with or how have we benefited from sort of people who are working at a higher level? Absolutely, we have. So I think early on, you know, it was a very one-off kind of approach to working with campaigns. But as we've gotten deeper into it, some of the folks who do larger volumes of work in this space have been really good partners to us in terms of referring our work to other campaigns. And we've really started to see like a word of mouth effect on on sales. So our anticipation is that we're going to be serving more states and more customers in that cycle ahead. What's your sense about, is this market big enough to support a firm? Do you have a sense of how many campaigns you need in a cycle to be profitable, to be sustainable? Are there enough out there as you grow a staff and have to support this? What does that sort of bigger variables of the business look like? Yeah, we we believe very confidently that there the market is big enough. You know, in the realm of uh, markets generally, and even, you know, in the political space, it is a smaller market, but about $90 million is spent at the state level every cycle on, on just getting things qualified. And we believe we can, you know, claim a healthy percentage of that. The software services that we offer are very high margin. We think we can scale up that type of service, very low cost. And then we are also, as I mentioned earlier, we also provide package services that include validation, which campaigns are already spending about 10% of their budgets on validating their signatures. So with our 
process innovations on that, we believe we can compete on price and claim a pretty good margin as well. And then tack the paid services that we were just talking about on top of that. We think we have a good path to sustainability and profitability coming out of next cycle. What questions should I have asked you that I haven't? Oh, good question. You should have asked me, um, what issues do I really wish some set of groups was tackling by a ballot strategy? And my answer would be climate. Climate is really, I, I talked a lot about campaign finance reform, but increasingly climate is the issue that I wake up every day thinking about and just think we can't be acting urgently enough on. And I think particularly, you know, following the court decision that we just saw that basically handcuffed the EPA and a Congress that, you know, just is completely dysfunctional and doesn't seem able to do anything on this or most other issues. You know, it's really going to be falling to the states to take action, states and localities. And so it used to be the case that groups like, you know, NextGen, which is, you know, Tom Steyer founded, were really leading on a ballot approach to climate. And I just don't see as much energy there anymore. And I think it's a huge missed opportunity. That makes sense. I did have written down to ask you, what ballot measure would you most like to pass? Outside of climate, is there one like in democracy reform that if you could write it and get it through, maybe using your tools, you'd be most excited about? Going back to my roots in money and politics, I'm a huge believer in public financing. I think public financing does a lot of good things beyond just reducing the influence of money in politics. It really dramatically increases engagement and diversifies engagement among voters. It works best when it's paired with other aspects of money and politics reform, including, you know, new laws to fight back against dark money, which is just this ballooning problem. So I, I like kind of package approaches to campaign finance reform that, that do both of those things. Jay, it's been a pleasure to get to know you a little bit and hear what you're up to. I like it when people find an enterprise in an area that they have roots in and care a lot about. And it seems like you've done that. So definitely wish you the best. Is there anything else you want to say? No, just thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking with you too and appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. That was Jay Costa. Jay is at equal.us. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.